It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors Summer Sales Event. Get low as can be, APR, zero deposit and finance arranged within four hours. There's never been a better time to get to Blackstone Motors, Dundalk, Drogheda or Cavan. You're very welcome to Midweek Late Lunch Wednesday. Thank you for joining us once again on the show. Lots of interesting people and guests to meet over the next couple of hours. And we will be heading to Summer Hill as well because the Third Age have their open day there. And we're going to hear all about that. If you want to get in touch with us on the show, 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text or 1850-715-958 if you'd like to call in. Now, let me tell you about my first guest. Joanne O'Dwyer is a community employment supervisor on a rehabilitation program with the Red Door Project in Drogheda. And she joins us today on Late Lunch. Further to her story on Drogheda Life, which we spotted a number of weeks ago, and standing up at a recent get-together of the Red Door to tell her life story, I'm delighted to welcome her to Late Lunch today. Joanne, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you for joining me. Um, let's begin at the beginning. Your family, the West of Ireland, how many children were in the family? I was the second of four children, Jerry. Um, my mum and dad were pretty ambitious people. Um, my, one of the earliest memories I had was mum and dad building a little convenience shop attached to our, our first home. Um, dad was a chef and mum was a housewife. Um, they were always stro- strived for a, a better life for us. And from, I suppose, around four or five, we moved from, from Sligo to Cavan. And um, that kind of was the, the start of the picture of kind of moving from place to place to kind of try and better the family and businesses. So we were always in the catering business. Dad was a chef, so he would have ran um, golf clubs and he had a hotel and um, stuff like that. So there was always, you know, a, a real, you know, to, to do well and to, to, you know, to better yourself. And I suppose that's the difference in me, I suppose, I see as in usually when you look at someone that gets involved in heroin, it's... Um, it's maybe someone from a very impoverished area. Very, I was very middle class and very normal life. I didn't come from. I wasn't very, you know, hard or you know, bad upbringing. Yes, yeah, it was very. This can touch anybody, yeah. no matter where you are in this social strata that they yeah. talk about. Mm. But here's the thing: you moved a lot, and this is a significant thing in your story. Twenty homes, nine different schools. Was that? Did that underpin the difficulties that followed? I, yeah, I suppose I, I would have been a pretty anxious child. My mother would say I was very much a leader and very strong, but I would have always been very a lot of uncertainty. And the moves came a lot of, you know, you kind of try to reinvent yourself. And I was, I was a pretty overweight child and um, really struggled at times to fit in. So all, a lot of moving, for me anyway, when I see now, when I look at, I suppose, 
um, the, what might might go towards affecting someone that ends up on drugs would be for me it was it was an issue. Um, there was I suppose I a lot of access to alcohol at a young age. We had dad had bars and mum and dad had bars and stuff. So I would have had you know a, a pretty pretty easy access to alcohol from a young age. So what I, age did you start drinking? I was drinking. I definitely was drinking by the time I done my junior cert. I remember when I was doing my junior cert, I was, I was a pretty regular drinker, weekend drinker. Um, by the time I was doing my leaving cert, we'd moved from the home place, and my brother and me had done our um, leaving cert away from the home place. And by that stage, I was um, probably going to school on a Monday and a Friday, hungover. You know, um, so that was the real start of my. And I realised at that stage that. It, it took away a lot of my insecurities and it took away, you know, and alcohol was, you know, it was it was something to escape, I suppose, feelings that I already had there underneath. Um, from there then, when I left school, um, I got a, a place doing science in Carlo and um, when I went to Carlo, I found a whole access to drugs in. So from then, um, I remember going down and I was in digs in Carlo and um, within a few months I was hanging around with people that were doing drugs. So I was starting to um, experiment with weed and hash and ecstasy and acid, magic mushrooms. From And at that stage, I was I was just 18 at that stage. Um, then I, I let, dropped out of college, didn't tell my parents and stayed living down there and um, continued partying for the whole summer and then uh, the, till the summer. And that summer I went to London and um, from then on, I suppose I was pretty pretty heavily taking drugs regularly, like recreational drugs. Um, worked in London. I was selling speed and coke in a in the bar. I worked in a London, and I came home. I remember coming home. I meant to come home at the end of summer. I didn't come home till near Christmas. And I remember my mum ringing me. You know what's going on? Are you coming home? And you know what I mean. I came home, and I remember I was uh, probably three or four stone lighter than I'd went, and um, I was pretty pretty dishevelled, and. When I came home that time, my mum and dad were now living in Dublin. Did you burn bridges in London? Just come back to that for a second. Did you did, did well, I get an impression that really it was time to get out of London? There was, yes. I had, I had, I were, at this stage I was, I was sleeping on people's floors and I was, I had burnt, yes. I definitely had burnt, used up all my favours and um, I I came home when the time was, I had no more. I remember getting, scraping the money together to get a bus to Hollyhead and Hollyhead in the ferry home. And being absolutely starving and just going, this is, I have to, you know what I mean? I, I need to, I need to do something at that stage. So you were working, what, what drugs were you taking at that stage? Um, definitely a regular, a weed smoker. Um, I suppose in them days it was hash. Now there's, you know, you wouldn't get hash at the moment. It's mostly weed. Um, definitely doing ecstasy and speed at weekends, going to raves. I spent a lot of time in London in the rave scene. So when I came back to Dublin, um, my mum and dad were in, in, living in Dolly Mount and um, I got a flat in the inner city and I continued that lifestyle going to raves the weekend I'd be in um, the asylum or in um, the Ormond in Dublin and I'd maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and I'd work for my dad in in his in his um, establishment um, so Were you able to function? At that stage I was Jerry. yeah, but yeah you Even fun, with you, all this? Yeah, you'd still, you know, you're young. I was a young person. I was, you know, I was only, well, 19 or so. I was, yeah, you drag yourself around, I suppose. And you were functioning, I suppose, as, as well as, as well as uh, when I think now, you probably weren't functioning. It probably, you know, I wasn't probably eating well and I wasn't, um, wasn't saving money. wasn't doing things that normal people do, minding myself, washing myself. But I just go to work. Every penny I made was spent at the weekends partying. And so you're like, I remember coming home from raves at, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, going straight to work. That was a regular 
You know what I mean? You wouldn't even sleep. Going days without sleeping, just and that, that would. Be, and I'm sure a lot of people, you know what I mean, in in the late nineties, you know, would would remember that. You know what I mean? Mm. Anybody was, you know what I mean, it was a big rave scene at the time. Mm. So in Dublin, uh, you go to catering college and you're taking ecstasy and cocaine at this stage. Um, well, I, I started when I came back then from London. There was an onus on me to do something with my life, and I think um, I I done a bit. I remember I done. Um, went to K- yeah, signed up for catering college, and um, I was good. I was good. I was always dad was a chef, and so I was always in the kitchen. So I had a very good knowledge of it. So I didn't really have to go that much because I was pretty good anyway. Mm. So I was, you know, I turn up. I turn up for the <laughs> the practical stuff and cook, and then the lecturers all really really liked me. And sure, I I, I bluffed my way through the rest of it, you know, because because um, you know, I I was able to cook. So um. Uh, around around 1997 19, yeah 1997 I met my son's dad and that was Mark that's Mark yeah mm. and um, Mark and me hit it off straight away we got on really well and we were out we met him in, in that scene and um, then I suppose within a few months of, of being you know um, being, being in that in, in Mark in that scene I was aware that heroin was coming in at, at nights so when you're coming down heroin you know is a, is a is a sedative so it would help you sleep it would help you come down from the high of, of the, the other drugs and um, I remember seeing it around and going I'll, I'll never touch that that's for that's you know the heroin is uh, for junkies and scumbags and I won't um, that'll never be me and, and then like as I say to my clients now you sit in a barber's long enough you get a haircut it was around me long enough and one night I went ah give it to me there I'll have a go I couldn't sleep I was you know what I mean I just wanted to to sleep and I wanted to come down and I tried it and straight away I went this is what I've been looking for all my life this is the this is the always searching there was always a want in me for something a kind of a hole inside me and the minute I took it I went this is it yeah this is the drug that's for me and very quickly, the nights out stopped, and it was nights in at the weekends smoking heroin. Um, maybe you know Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, and then it became it was every night of the week. Um, that was a, probably you know a quick enough process. Um, got hooked. You know, if you don't have heroin, you you you're sick, physically sick. As where I suppose cocaine, or you know, there's a, a psychological you know want for it. Um, I remember being achy and kind of, you know, fluey and, and if I didn't have it, I, you know, I, I'd be in a bad way and very quickly started, you know, robbing from my mum and dad and um, I was, you know, shoplifting. Mark started dealing to, to, you know, to try and, you know, to feed our habit and, and things went from there very quickly to, um, I remember, you know, uh, missing days in work and not paying rent and just very quickly the decline and I was obsessed. Life is spiralling out of control yeah. and yet you say, I found what I've always wanted. Heroin is what I need. You got to the stage, is this true, that you were injecting three bags a day? Yeah, I would have when I, uh, you know, you smoke for so long and the tolerance is there and you, you know what I mean? And, you, and you're, I was on methadone and stuff. But the day come came when there, uh, you know, I, I wanted a bit, a bit more of a stronger hit or, you know, I wasn't doing it for me anymore. And I started injecting and it, that very quickly um, we had, I had access to it, you know, and it was eventually, yeah, I was up to injecting three bags a day. Um, if I would listen, whatever you could get. If I got more, I'd take it. And there was days I didn't have it, and I was sick. But on top of that, I was taking methadone, and I was getting tablets as well, benzodiazepines prescribed to me. So 
you know, when I look at it now, I was probably never sick, but I was telling myself that because I just wanted more and more. And you build mm. a tolerance and you want more and you want, you know. You started running drugs to Liverpool, to Amsterdam, in and out of Dublin airport, smuggling heroin. Yeah. You were never not, caught. Not proud of it. I, I was nearly once or twice, yeah. Um, nearly once or twice coming through um, the port one day. I remember getting searched and going, oh, this is it. I'm I'm gone. Um, no, I I was I don't know how somebody was looking over me. I was blessed. I remember sleeping one night in um, Liverpool Port with um, a load of Hello magazines over me in a, in a in a kind of a crate, and there was two or three entry was on at the time, and there was horses in. The, I could hear the horses in the other crates on because I went to Liverpool and I had missed the 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 boat back. I remember sleeping in a in a in a crate and going, "This is." This is this is crazy. Like, what are you at? Um, life was pretty mad at that time, you know. Like we, like uh, you know, we done what you had to do. Um, Mark was dealing, and and um, you just, you know, yeah, it was crazy. And I'm not proud of things I done. I'm not proud of of you know of bringing or any criminal. Like I have a criminal record, and I'm not proud of. And I've done things that I can't even. I wouldn't even talk about because they're so, you know. Oh God, make my my skin crawl now when I think about it. But that's what happens when you're on drugs. You you all your morals and your values and everything that any that my parents you know instilled in me. Um, the good person. My mother always say, remember the good, the, you know, the good stock you came from. And I did, but every all that went out the window because and I wasn't. I'm not. I wasn't the person I am today. And you know, and you do things and. Uh, when when you're in that place of addiction that that you would never normally do. So. You know, that was my behaviour and addiction. That wasn't me as a person. Can you not see outside of it? You know, you, you've you experienced this. I haven't. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, when you're in this and what you describe there, is there not something inside you screaming, come on, Joanne, stop? Of course, yeah, of course you know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. And you know that, you know, you're hurting people and you're guilty and you're remorseful and you're shameful and you're embarrassed. But... You know, you just you just keep going because that you need the drug and you need and 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 it's it's you know it's so hard to see the wood from the trees when you're in that place. And of course, from anybody looking on the outside, you're going, "Come on, cop yourself on, woman. What are you doing? You're you know you're you're you know you're you're ca- causing so many people so much hurt. Um, there's you know people you know like you're getting a criminal record, you're getting a bad name for yourself. Nobody wanted to. Anybody saw me coming, they would lock their you know what I mean, grab their hand, you know I, I anything that wasn't laid down, I took. But um, like, you don't, you're not able when you're in that place of addiction. You can't see that, and it's very hard to see. And because the the drug has such a hold on you, and of course you see it. You see you're hurting people, but there's very little that you you know uh, when you're in that place that you know it, 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 there's no there's no. It's very hard to come out of. You did attend a methadone clinic. You did seek help. You spent six weeks uh, detoxing. But then a bit of a bombshell. You're told that you're hepatitis C positive. Was that the gunk that many people would feel it, it would be if you were told something like that? Yeah, I remember I was uh, I was in, in detox at the time in Beaumont Hospital and I had planned to go into rehab and um, I was told while I was there you had hepatitis C. And I suppose at the time, you know, you, you kind of know the risks, you know, there was hepatitis C or HIV around it. Um, I saw at the time I was still, I was like, oh yeah, it'd be grand, it'd be grand. But when now when I look at it and someone told me I had hepatitis C, I'd be going, oh my God. Yeah, it, you know what I mean? The, the effects it has in your liver and your immune system and all that. But um, yeah, at the time... <laughs> Time, I suppose, I just brushed it off and yeah, it'd be grand, you know. And but you couldn't brush it off because Christmas, nineteen ninety nine. I'm sure you'll never forget that time. A revelation. 
You're five months pregnant. Yeah, I was, I was pregnant with my son. Um, gave birth to him in, you know, returned to hospital. He, I was hepatitis C. He, I was on 40 mils of methadone and I remember sitting watching him and he was in a high dependency and he'd been watched, monitored for withdrawals. And I remember the nurses and everybody coming in and just feeling so shameful and so and kind of realization going, what what is going on here? You know, you're you're look what you have to do. And um, I remember walking out of the hospital going, they're actually letting me walk out of here with this child. Do they do they know what I'm what who I am and what I'm at? And they're handing me this bundle going off. You go, I was twenty two. I was twenty three two days later. On I had him two days before my twenty third birthday. And um, it was madness when I think about it. And I remember at the time there was a lot of talk in the hospital. Social workers were talking to me, and and I remember I went home then to live with my mum and dad. And my mum and dad were, were brilliant. They were great, great support. But that kind of on top of a newborn child, then on top of everything that was going on for me, just you know threw me into more of a spiral of of madness. We're going to talk more about that spiral in a moment. She's my special guest on Late Lunch today. You're hearing a remarkable life story. Joanna O'Dwyer is with us. Stay with us on Late Lunch. Joanna O'Dwyer is telling her story on Late Lunch this afternoon. Your baby's born, Keen, and you have to watch that baby go through the withdrawal process after coming into this earth. You mentioned there that you were given the baby, left the hospital, went back into your family who took you back willingly. But there was tension. That didn't last. You moved out on your own. I moved out on my own. I got my own place with Mark. Or with, no, sorry, not with Mark, with Keane. And um, I put Keane into creche. And I remember then um, I started getting jobs and trying to look around and I would work with my dad a bit and maybe go off and get a job here and there. But I was still... Still, I went back using. I when I had Keen, I was actually wasn't injecting heroin at the time. I was just on methadone. Went back using again heroin, and um, things from then on between Mark and me, kind of, we kind of the Latin, when Keen was around two, we started to pull away from each other. Um, Mark got a prison sentence and kind of gave me a bit of space away from him. And um, I continued from Keen from around two thousand to two thousand and four. Um, my, my drug use got worse and I started injecting coke and, and heroin together. How did you mind the baby? Well, I had a great support from my mother and father. Um, minding the baby, you know, I was pretty functioning. I was a very functioning addict. Um, I think there's many mothers out there that are, you know what I mean? Um, I, I, I definitely had, a, I was very conscious that, you know, he was dependent on me and I minded him. But I suppose looking now, you know what I mean, was I really minding him? But I thought at the time I was, I was doing my best. I'd done my very best with him. Mm. Yeah. So you continued to use cocaine and heroin. The addiction continued. You 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 said that you, you, your veins were in absolute bits, and that you, you you this day you went to court. You were up for what? Armed robbery. I was involved in an armed robbery. Yeah, I had. Um, How did you in, get in, into in, that? Was into, that tied well, in that, with the, the addiction? You see, when you're when you're involved in, in addiction, you're going to be involved in criminality and people who are involved in crime. That's what people do to 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 I suppose sustain their addiction. So yeah, I got involved um, with somebody who was doing um, an armed robbery, and I um, yeah, I was up in court. And that day um, I arrived in court and I had been asked to give urines and I hadn't given them. And I kind of thought, I should be grand. And when I arrived in court, I remember I was after using and um, the judge started shouting at me and I stood up and said that I was I was um, insulting his courtroom by arriving in the state I was. And very quickly, I remember all of a sudden I saw a guard walking towards me with handcuffs in his hand and I'm going, oh my God, I'm going to get locked up here and my son is going to be taken away from me and nobody even knows I'm here and just it's like my life flashed before me and I was going and next minute from the corner of the room this guard stood up a big tall man I didn't even know him and he said sorry your honour please I know this this, this girl's family and um, she's a really really good person and really but she's just went down an awful bad path 
and please can you appeal into the court can you give her a chance and I don't even know what happened for the next few minutes but I know then I walked out I got two years probation and a suspended sentence and I remember walking out and the guard came over to me and he kind of said you're, you you were so lucky to walk out here today I remember crying and he told me you need to think about what you're at Joanne you need to you're a good girl and he said you're just you're, you're going to end up you're going to end up just you know you're going to end up in trouble so I know um, so that was it really the re- kind of the penny was starting to drop then I remember I was injecting at the time it was going into my neck and my groin um, I my, even still to this day I can't get blood out of me um, when I go to the hospital it's it's uh, my, my veins are very bad and I, I was and my doctor at the time was saying you're going to end up dead because you're going to inject yourself someday into your neck you're going to get a clot you're going to die you know you need to start thinking about you know either going back into treatment or doing something and it was around that time then mum and dad moved from from Dublin down to Casabellinum and they said you know, it was going to be left on my own in Dublin with Keane and I suppose probably they were concerned for Keane as well as, and they said, come down to Castlebell and see what you think. And, you know, get a, get a place your own and um, we'll take it from there. And I did. And that was 2000, early 2005. And within a few months of that, I met um, Ronnie, a man I married since. And um, on the 25th of, Fe- of March 2005 was the last time I ever injected heroin and Ronnie was a huge I suppose a huge huge factor in that he came in and um, I got a bit of st- stability and I got a bit I could see starting to see a bit clearer and I was just on methadone and on tablets and I wasn't using regularly and I kind of got a bit of money you know and I kind of started to kind of put it into Keane and the house and stuff and kind of was able to kind of just you know settle myself and I took took stock and I realised this is madness so um there, then the following year, I started looking at. Um, I again inj- reinfected myself with hepatitis a second time, and I looked then at trying to get off my methadone. And I had an excellent doctor at the time in Dublin, um, Tony Crosby, who helped me um, withdraw off the methadone in slow process, and he allowed me to do it as I wanted. So that probably took me maybe a year and a half, two years, come off all the you know all the medication and and stuff I was on and after that then I got um, some treatment for the hepatitis C I was very lucky Bowmont Hospital gave me a trial because I got clean and got off everything they'd only give it to people who would who would um who were stable and who were clean and so they gave me a trial drug and I got and I got I got I was blessed I got the all clear that um in I think 20 2011 or 2012 I got the mm. So you're on the, the, the way I'm, back I'm on the way off. back up now Jim. You're off you're clean at this stage you put on a lot of weight at one stage didn't you? What size did you go to? I was 20 I was nearly 24 stone um, this this happened around that time I I um, I just started I was I started overeating I suppose I thought because I wasn't using drugs that I was in recovery and now when I know what I know now since I've you know studied it so much that I actually I'd stopped using drugs but I was still I was still in, in addiction because I was still the pain and hurt that that was there from all past experiences and things that I had done to people and the hurt and pain that was still there I hadn't dealt with it so I just swapped one addiction for the other I started to overeat I eat and eat and eat and I remember I it was just I was I was miserable I got to, I tipped nearly 24 stone I could I remember one day being in in, in the shopping centre with Keane um, at Christmas and he was running up and down the marshes and in the middle and I couldn't keep up with him and I sat down and I, my feet were swollen and I was just I was miserable and I was going what is going on here I thought because I wasn't you know the drugs were gone and I should be happy but I'm not and um, I was like okay there's there's something more here going on so I decided to go to a counsellor very good um, um, somebody in a um, friend of mine well he's a good friend of mine now in Dundalk and he um, started working through kind of 
the issues of that were underlying that I know now that, that I hadn't dealt with at the time and started to, to kind of, um, you know, unravel them and talk about stuff that had happened to me in the past and so things I had done to people and the whole big ball of a mess of, you know, of, of years of pain and hurt. And um, I started to realise what, what I was doing. There was always a want and a hole and a kind of a, an emptiness inside me. And I was, no matter what, whether drugs or I was trying to fill it with food or drugs or whatever. Um, it was in then 2009, I applied to University of Ulster for a degree in counselling and I got in. And I done four years from two thousand and nine to two thousand and thirteen um in that time though um in two thousand and eleven we got news that Mark had passed away and very sad um he uh, drowned in an accident in the Lithian. um i suppose that was you know um he he'd been unwell and he he um he uh, I suppose we'd been homeless and he just he'd went in a real real and I was kind of going one way and he was going the other but it was very sad I suppose and it was very sad for Keen that his his dad had passed away and he you know and, and that was it was upsetting and so it was only now it's kind of at the time kind of just got on with it but now you know I reflect on that you know it was it was a very very sad sad for his family and you know It had a big effect stay there I'm just taking a news break I want to finish this story after okay. too she's staying with us on late lunch what a remarkable lady I have as my special guest today Joanna O'Dwyer we'll round up the story after news and weather at two Joanna O'Dwyer has been telling a remarkable story to us on late lunch this afternoon Look, all's well that ends well. You go to the University of Ulster, you lose all that weight, you're up and settled on your own with your son, Keen, and you qualify and you volunteer for a while around, you know, the services and eventually you end up at the Red Door. And at this stage, can I say the rest is history? The rest is history, yeah. It is. It's a very good, it's a very good, the ending is a great, it's a great story. But unfortunately, not everybody gets to, to make it. You know what I mean? And we see that in the red To door. tell the story, because I want to ask you this, and this is crucial. Do you ever think about how you came through? Yeah, there's times I sit back and go, yeah, you're amazing, Joanne, look at you. But <laughs> then, uh, yeah, I suppose I wouldn't be here only for the love and support of my family and very good friends. Um, my family always stood by me and I would have hurt them greatly. Um, um, but my mum and dad are, are amazing people and my brothers and sisters and, and Keen as well, my son, um, have always been there for me. Um, I've hurt them a lot in the past and, you know, but um, they've... they. You know what I mean? That's kind of in the past and they see who I am now and they're very proud of me and and very um, happy from, you know what I mean, where I've got to. So, um, yeah, I suppose I do sit back some days and go, God, look at you, like, you know what I mean? But, yeah, I suppose you... Is that a message for others? There are people listening today who are living with addicts. Yes. And it's so difficult. And they feel like disowning them or saying, go away, leave me alone. Mm. You people stuck with you. Is that vital? It, well, for me, it was. I knew when the time was right and I decided to do something about it that they'd be there for me. So they rejected my behaviour as in addiction, but they loved me as a person and they could see, they could separate that. So I suppose oh, I, I'm a family support um, counsellor and I would say that to the people I work with, that, uh, you know, it's the addiction. You have to separate the addiction from the from the person and, you know, to, to see that that's not them. That's their behaviour in addiction and their... And their um, 
what are you pointing to, Jerry? I'm trying to. I don't so, want to stop you. In so um, like, go yeah, on. so that's it, really. I, I know it's hard to live with someone in addiction. You know, um, I, I, you know, I see it all the time, and and it's very hard to, you know, to put up with someone that, you know, what I mean, who is being dishonest and maybe robbing and, you know, and being manipulative and being, you know, and being aggressive or whatever. And it's very hard to put up with that. But you know, it's about being boundary around people and and what you will and won't accept. And I suppose there was a bit of tough love for my parents, and they were very you know they wouldn't accept certain things about me and, and I went off and done my own thing but I knew when the time was right yet that they would they'd take me back and, and only for them I probably wouldn't be sitting here today This is what I'm pointing at I love to hear my sister Joanne sharing her story <laughs> hoping it will help others moving to Castle Bellingham turned out to be the best thing to happen to her and at lovely uh, and and all that lovely support she got there. Yes. People we love her so much that comes in from the O'Dwyer gang. Oh, thank you, O'Dwyer gang. That's Shauna. Yeah, she's my sister. And she, you know, and I look at our relationships but I have two brothers and a sister and at times I had I fell out with all of them because of stuff I'd done to them and hurt them. And they're they're my bigger my biggest champions now. You know, um, and and as well, Casabellingham people in Casabellingham, the community of Casabellingham, O'Connell's Football Club, to the people that live in the village, to you know, people I've met through um, fitness, Jackie Agnew Fitness. That you know what I mean. I've just I have a huge community of people, and it's like the community that's in the Red Door Project. That you, you need a healthy, um, safe place to heal, and I'd always say that I got that in Casabellingham. I have amazing friends, and um, the Red Door that I work in now, I suppose that's what we try and in, in, you know give to people that come in a safe place to get better and to get well. Homelessness and mental health issues get a lot of attention and are talked about, yes. but you've said we're not dealing with the root cause of these, which is the addiction. Yes, is you- that the big bogey? for government and services today. Yeah, it, addiction isn't sexy. Nobody wants to talk about it. And it's only lately we're starting to talk about homelessness and mental health. But if you look at underneath a lot of people with mental health issues, there's addiction there as well, dual diagnosis. And if you look in our prison services, 70% of the prison are, are people that are, are there because of um, they, they've done something through addiction. They've committed a crime through addiction. So if we start to deal with the root problem and get rid of the stigma around addiction and around, that's why I'm, why I t- I'm talking about this, um, we can deal with all the, all the other problems. From, and our, our system is all wrong. We're criminalised, we're, we're, you know, we're punishing people for committing crimes because they're sick, because they're in addiction. And it's, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. The Red Door is a special place, I know. And yeah. I remember being there when it started in early days. And I went down and interviewed people there mm. as well. Do you feel with what you've been through and how you've survived and here you are today, now in there, helping others, that that experience sets you apart? <laughs> I, I, I don't yeah I suppose I, I don't feel you have to be in recovery to work in, in you know in a service like that um, I think once you have compassion and kindness and an understanding that people you know are, go through tough times and people are able to change that's all you need I suppose it is an added it is a, a definitely something I use um, there would have been a time where I'd be very shameful of my past but I, I use it now to instill hope in people so I would talk very openly about my journey and you know and the tools of my recovery and I talk all the time about gratitude and the minute I get up in the morning I put my two feet on the floor I talk about okay what am I grateful for today What I've got a roof over my head and I, I never look at what I don't have and what I you know what I mean what maybe Mary down the road has I'm, I'm very very grateful for the life I have and I constantly remind myself of that so I suppose to answer your question 
it, does it set me apart? I suppose it makes me who I am, but it's, it's, I use it. I definitely use it as a tool, but I don't think it's, you know, it, it, it's, it has to be, you know, you have to be in recovery to work with people in addiction. But it is certainly a big help when you walk the walk and then you have to talk the talk. Why did you decide at this stage to come out? You know, that term is used in another, <laughs> yeah. in another context entirely. Um, but you know what I mean? You've had this and, 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 you know, you stood up that night at the, uh, was it the first dinner dance? It was you our had first dinner dance to raise money Door. for the Red Door. Yeah. You were raising money for mm, yourself. Trying to raise money. We were so underfunded mm. and um, so under-resourced as well. Like the amount of problems that people have in this time around addiction and right with the feud that's going on you know we're seeing more and more people presenting daily families in crisis and we just don't have the money there's not enough staff and we don't have enough money coming from from our funders um so yeah it was to raise money and i suppose uh, i was asked by they were going to get an inspirational speaker and the management and louise and po kind of thought well why would we go and get somebody maybe that when we have our very own one here and i thought you know the time is right um i've held on to this for and every, everybody that knows me says you should write a book Joanne. you should write a book or you should start and i just felt the time was right keen was older now he understands me we have a great relationship and i would talk to him about and he you know and everybody around me was kind of yeah just the time felt right um and yeah, I just said, you know what, I'm going to go. Because I'm very open. Like, anybody who knows me knows the story. So it's about, I suppose, spreading the spreading it a bit around more. And a, a huge part of the stigma piece, you know, I, I'd like people to start talking about it a bit more. And the amount of people that have come to me since since Andy wrote the story and said, you know what, it's really helped me, Joanne. Um, and I'm living with this and this is going on in our background all the time. And we don't talk about it because it's it's the dirty, dirty secret people don't talk about. And it's happening the length and breadth of this country. People, whether it's alcohol or drugs or gambling or whatever else, um, it's happening and people aren't talking about it enough. The book. The book, Jerry. I'll dedicate a chapter to you. You just... <laughs> you don't have to. You just got to go and do this book. And I have it. I have the title. I have the title for you. I was just thinking before you came here, because we're going to be talking to Nicola Cassidy, who's another wonderful lady who's joining us shortly, and she has her second book out at this stage. But I see it. I see the title. My Life Into and Out of Addiction. Yeah. Your bestseller, Jerry. The, the title Me. is perfect, Joanne O'Dwyer. <laughs> I, I just see, do this now. You've, you, you've, you, you've done this. You've come this far. Mm. Write the book. Put it down because you know what? You've done a wonderful service. Let me say, Joanne O'Dwyer, to so many people through what you do every day and how you live your life and helping others. But to tell this remarkable story, and it's not easy. And I know there's more, as you said as well. Mm. But look. Go do it. That's the last thing I'll say to you today. Aww, thanks, Jerry. It's Thank there. You very much. It's there for you. It really is. You're remarkable. You're one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Wonderful, and I thank you for joining me on Late Lunch today. Joanne O'Dwyer, the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you, Jerry. Ah, oh, Louise. Jerry. Bad news. Bad news. I'm still wondering about Stevie. Oh, Jerry, did you not enjoy it? Look, I, I love to be there and to see him was a real privilege. But I have to honestly say, no matter what anyone tells you, and I'm always honest with uh, listeners and, and everybody, um, it wasn't the best concert I was ever at. I have to say from the word go. Uh, and you're saying you were waiting years to see ah, him. Ah, years and years. Uh, years and years to see him. And... Uh, Paid a bit to see him, which you do to see these artists. It was a sellout in terms of seated uh, punters and the standing area was jammed. He started off with the wrong song. The band were marvellous. 18 people, including backing singers on the stage. Brass section, wonderful. What a noise. But at times the noise drowned him out. He sang a number of songs, I agree. Some well-known, others not. But look, when I tell you there was a DJ on the stage and he warmed up the crowd beforehand... And we saw in the in, in the schedule of songs to be sung, there were cover versions of Prince and Michael Jackson. I thought he was going to do them. See, right. Stevie sat at his piano and the DJ played the songs. And what he did might he do? He might have been in a disco in Dundalk or Drogheda or Navin. What did Stevie do? He just sat there. Does it? He just sat there, so he did. Oh, my well, God. Or maybe he needs a rest. He is of an age. He is. He's almost 70 and maybe he's healthy. He's due a kidney transplant. He's going for that now shortly. We understand all that, but come on. When he sang his own, the place went wild, I have to say. And, you know... If the sound quality was better, though, would have been... When he sang... It would have been an aspect, but to have a DJ playing covers on the stage, come on. No, 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 no. And him just sitting there. Not at all. They called it completely wrong. Whoever put it together, I have to say. I'm sorry to say they did. They called it wrong. There were lots of people up from the northeast. The Matthews buses were running, packed up to the concert. I'm sure there's people listening today. What did you think? We had Stevie Wonder. Have you a view? What did you think of it? Did you love it? Maybe I'm on the wrong tack altogether. But I don't think I am, to be honest, which I'm a fair regular concert goer, as you know. Uh, and if you have anything to say, if you're at Stevie, love to hear from you. 086 658 by WhatsApp or text or 1857 if you'd like to call in. I didn't think I'd be coming back today to talk in yeah, those I terms about him. I really back didn't. Demon. Oh, well, I expected to be. But uh, they went mad at the end when he sang. Superstition. Uh, oh, listen, they went absolutely crazy. And for the ones that they loved him, even I just called to say I love you. They played a, I don't know what kind of a version of it they played. Diluted one. Anyway, that's Stevie. I'm still wondering. <laughs> Let's hear from Beyonce. Better not play Stevie. St- Beyonce, get this right now. Come on, crazy in love. Don't mess it up. Let's hear it. Oh, 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 oh. 
Now, my next guest is a really good friend of late lunch, a contributor from time to time on Women With Opinions. We've also talked to her over the years on a range of topics. And Nicola Cassidy also joined us on the publication of our first novel, December Girl. And she's back today as our new one. I love the title. The Nanny at number 43 hits the bookstores. Well, good on you, young one. Thank you, Sherry. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks very much. On the second one, you know, one, the first one, you know, you, you get away. And the first one did really well didn't it for you yeah it did well in that it got great um, reviews yes you know and it did well on Amazon Amazon it made one of the number one bestseller lists for a while so that's really all you can ask for when you're putting it out like on Mm. on Amazon and that because it was a digital contract it wasn't really in the shops I had it locally but I didn't have a distribution deal so for me I was very happy with how it Mm. went but this is different this is in the shops the deal is done the deal is done I'm everywhere now. <laughs> the title, I come back to the title again. You know, The Nanny in Number 43. I really do love the title. Tell them about the inspiration. You went walking in Drawda. Yeah, as you do. Uh, one summer evening back in 2015 and the old Drawda Society run uh, walking tours every summer and they're absolutely brilliant. I don't tend to get on them because just the time with kids and everything but one year I said there was a, a talk on crime and punishment in Drawda and I said to my husband I'm going on this one and I left him with the the baby at the time and I went off on the tour and um, just very interesting different stories of crimes that happened all through Drogheda but on one part of the tour we were standing up at the top of Peter Street and the guide talked about infanticide and told us stories that back in the 1800s and 19th century that there was a a lot of infanticide in in Ireland um, a lot of young women who would maybe have their babies and would have to dispose of them or get rid of them and there was a case just at the top of Peter Street where a young girl had put her baby in a suitcase under the bed and left it there. And people had obviously come along and found it then later. So that stuck at me. I just thought, wow, that's horrible, obviously. But um, as part of it, I just thought as a story, it really stuck with me. And when I was starting to write this novel, um, that stuck with me and it became the opening of my book then. It's, it's, yeah, they, they find babies' bodies in a suitcase. That is my opening. Wasn't that walk well worthwhile? Yeah. It really was, and, yeah. and that you picked up on that as well. But that is something, and you researched this, obviously, for the book. In the 1800s and into the early 1900s, infanticide was Up a to 1940s, common thing. Common. Like, I couldn't believe it, because it's, you know, the way nowadays, if there was any sort of body found anywhere, they were fi- they were literally, I, I read a coroner's uh, casebook from Monaghan, so it was just in Monaghan uh, over a 20-year period, and there was that ma- he kind of said there was that many babies being found in ditches and in places... They they couldn't investigate them, so it it was it was just it was a common occurrence. It wasn't something that was such a hullabaloo. Now in my book, it's a hullabaloo because I've made it because you know you were a modern mm, audience mm. reading it. But that really struck me that that was how you know life was just not especially young babies were just not considered 
the way Shocking, we consider babies now yes. probably because people have so many kids and everything mm, as well and just mm. the norms at the time but um, I did investigate it further and I've done some um, talks on it and I mean we're talking vegetable patches ditches there was one case where a woman was going out to the ditch to feed the baby and coming back into the house and they found the baby and that baby lived so there were some happier stories but that's um, that was the kind of the inspiration behind the, the story Now the newspaper advert of 80, 80 is another significant yeah. one in, in, in the lead into this as well Yeah, so after chapter one, after the bodies are found, we see this advert, which I've taken directly from the Drogheda Conservative 1880. And it was an advert and that's where the 43 comes in. So 43 Lawrence Street and the advert said, wanted a respectable woman to care for a motherless child. So that's a real, that's a real family that happened back in 1880 that they were looking. I don't know why the child, why, whether the mother was gone, whether they found a baby, we don't know. And I've taken that ad, started my story with it. And then obviously I've made up the rest of the story. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm curious in my mind, where is, which building is 43 it's, um, Lawrence Street? I think it's like a, it's like a curtain sh- shop or it's something. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I mean, every time I walk by it, I'm staring at it. It's not actually a beautiful building now or anything. It's quite insignificant in the okay. street. Um, but it would have been, it would have been all housing. Along yes, there, at that you know? time. Yeah, and it, it, they that were lent, lived in. That, yeah, and that lent itself then to kind of the story because obviously the Whitworth is up at the top. That would have been all the carriages going up for the dances up under the gate. And then, you know, so all the landscape, the, I mean, it hasn't changed. Yeah. It's exactly the same. It's just it would possibly maybe whoever's there now they'll be getting these hordes of people after this book makes it massive they'll be be coming and say that that is the building (laughs) there that that she was talking about Um, you know when you research and you go back and you immerse yourself in this that's fine and, and that's the factual history you have to do this thing called imagining yeah, <laughs> and that's the key, isn't it, to writing historical fiction? Yeah, you have to really transport people back, and you don't want like I do a huge amount of research, but not most of it doesn't go in. You're just maybe thrown in little snippets or a little phrase, um, and that's the key because I know myself if I'm reading something and I I know the um, author has done a lot of research and they're dumping their research. I hate that because it's almost like a school project rather than a novel. So I have to be very careful just to weave the uh, research in. But the key, uh, any good book and any good story is the story and the plot. And it's okay to have these details and nuggets, but unless the book takes you through with believable characters and a believable story, you'll throw it there. So I worked very hard to kind of create it from start to finish, I think, a story that I can be proud of. So the story first, I, I've asked this so many times over the uh, the characters, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you, um, is it the Story you the create. story, the nugget of the story. So I, okay. you know, the nanny arriving in just created that character. Yes, and the story flows from that. But um, but Betty, my character. Yeah. Guess where I got that name from? <laughs> <laughs> no way. I swear to God. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Our own, right. our own yeah. Betty Clark. Yes. I've told Betty. Betty knows that. Um, I was trying to think of a character. Now I'm not saying the character is Betty. I just took the name, I borrowed her name. I've told her that, and so she is a significant character. She's my favorite character in it. Oh, don't um, we love our Betty? Clark, yeah. we really do. She, she'll be chuffed at this. Yeah. I'm sure she is. That yeah, she... I did say it to her. I don't know if she remembers, but um, yeah, yeah. And it's not. I mean, that's the thing with characters. Like you, you, I create new characters. You just imagine a person and you write them, but they obviously will take in bits of people. You know, that's mm. that's but that's what writers do. They're always observing. Now, Margaret Murphy is the nanny. Yeah, and of course, it revolves around, <laughs> doesn't it? Yes. Uh, yes. 
Do we give that? Is that a plot giveaway? No, 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 no. no. I'm just saying that's yeah. her no, name. No, she gives her name. That's her start. name. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's, that's it's, her name. That's the name of the lady who is that. But the nanny is the is the thing, isn't it? In this, yeah. is the person, is the character that really. Yeah, she's sinister. You mm. see. Yeah. So, um, you're all the time. You know that she has a history with Drahada because in the opening chapter, she she walks by the workhouse and she that comes in quite quickly. That you know she's a history, but you don't know what and you don't know why and you don't know why she's come back and why she has this kind of story to do with number 43 what is what it why has she arrived yes. here and that's what the whole book tries to find and, out and in number four, 43 there is uh, the, the man there is the person who's looking for this nanny to William, take care yeah. of the child William and there's a Mrs McHugh there yeah so she's the housekeeper yes a very important person very yeah and you know I was, it was important for me to write kind of an older woman as well who's significant so there's two older women in the story because I find a lot of maybe fiction I read and a lot of fiction especially being written by a younger person, is about younger people. Mm. I really wanted older characters in this book because they've life experience. They're set in their ways and, and when things happen to them, they can be you know very upset about it. So uh, well, she's an important character. An important character because she has this friend called Betty who you've just revealed who that's based upon. <laughs> well, that's based upon her. Loosely, it? loosely, <laughs> let me say. Uh, <laughs> but Betty is confined to her yeah. room in this building that overlooks. Yeah. Now, I was getting uh, feelings of Rear Window and Hitchcock and Jimmy Stewart oh and Grace Kelly, you know that movie? Yeah. Where he's, you know, he's he's in an accident and he, he's in this room and he sees goings on. Yes, I have seen I have seen that. Did that come yeah. into your mind? No? Um, what came into my mind was McPhail's pub <laughs> and being up there one time. <laughs> <laughs> and me thinking Hitchcock. Oh, here, hold on. Will I just get this? I'm going to just, I'm just going to tear that off. That's all right, Nicola. Go ahead. I'll there. go with Hitchcock, but no, um, I've looked out that window myself. And, um, <laughs> Have you? And that's where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> Illegally. <laughs> Let me say. But the plot thickens as it, as it goes along. And I, we don't want to spoil this because we're not here to spoil it. We're just here to give people a taster yeah. of it and let, let them know what's coming. Look, when you work through this and it takes a period of time, tell us about what happens then, the process. When you, when you finish draft one, do you give that to somebody to look at or, or do you get somebody to critique it or how does um, that work? I do actually. I would, I write a couple of drafts. So okay. I kind of write one and I'll, I'll do an edit on it and I usually leave it there to settle because you need kind of time to forget it and come back and see it with fresh eyes. So I'll do that. Um, I do have a, a brilliant a friend and editor, um, Sally Vince who will beta read for me sometimes and that's invaluable because you're getting an expert's eye and she will pull up loads of mistakes and things that are wrong and then after that edit I will submit it then to my agent who will submit it to a publisher and luckily this time when it went out it had interest straight away so I kind of knew straight away it was going to going to be published and like when you look at it it's a lovely book so yeah they've done is. a great job Hoobag um, yeah. Press yeah. Um, really kind of they've, they've, I've captured it so well because I was looking at all these different nanny pictures but because the suitcase is on it it's a little bit sinister looking and it is yeah I mean, all the booksellers have said they, they really like it it looks good on the shelf so I'm really happy with it let me read the words on the top be careful who you let into your home the nanny at number 43 Nicola Cassidy you gotta get it you gotta read it the intrigue between these pages is is something else you're chuffed with it aren't you I'm happy with it yeah yeah, I feel like I feel with December Girl I was so over the moon to get it written and out there and that was it was I don't know it was different like it was 
I don't know, it's probably the first time you win a medal or a, a match or something. Whereas I felt the second, this one, I feel like I've put in a lot of work and I feel like I've progressed and I'm happy with, I suppose, my achievement in it and my writing of it. That's not to say I wasn't happy with December Girl. I was. But I feel like this has come on more and that's the way I want to be. Like I plan on writing a lot more books and yes. I want every one of them to get better and better, you know, because it is a craft and it's something that you're going to work at and refine. And I think this is, I'm, I'm really happy with this now. And yet that's that's the happiness. It's it's not, you know, the launch and everything's lovely and yes. all, the, all the kind of shebang that goes with it. But for me, putting something out that I'm happy with. And even if negative reviews come in, even if people do or don't like it, I'm happy with it. So, mm. you know, and that's what you have to be. Be assured that the greatest of the great have sat in that seat who are on their... 10th and 15th and they've sold millions and they told me exactly the same that book on book they learn they improve you know what I mean there is a craft to this but here I have to pick a crow with you listen to this about the author I have to read this Nicola Cassidy grew up in the quiet countryside outside Drogheda in County Louth and started writing stories at a young age what's wrong with that it's like a fairy tale isn't it My life is a fairy tale. Jerry. After the cover, be careful who you let into your home. The <laughs> quiet a, ones you have to watch. There's a bit of a contrast there, isn't there, between the two? I'm only slagging you. She says, "Don't slag me coming in the door. Don't slag me. I wouldn't slag you. We love you to bits." So the launch is happening. Tell us about it. It's tomorrow, so isn't tomorrow, it? Tomorrow, Waterstones, half six. I was I've been down a few times. The wine is cooling. Um, I'm looking forward to it now. Uh, it's, all stocked up. It's actually in their best salads already this week, so I'm delighted even before like, we launched it. Yeah, so, and you know what? I was in with Claire, the manager of Mortarstones, and she said, we're getting loads of people coming in who say we're supporting local and that means a lot. You know, people are being brilliant. Yes. Um, people do want to read, you know, and, and it's lo- set locally. There's not many novels you can pick up that are set in Drogheda. Very so. true, and you'll yeah. recognise the places uh, and some of the people, Betty. Um, <laughs> You're going to have to see you she's in there, gonna, Jerry, she's now. She's going to kill me for this. She'll never come again to Women with Opinion. She'll choke me. Um, it's half six in Waterstones tomorrow evening tomorrow, in Scotch yeah. Hall. And it's open house. It's open house, yeah. Anyone can come along. And um, just it's people keep saying to me, what is the book launch? What is it? It's just, it's just launching the book. There'll be a glass of wine. I'll be there signing. Um, I did have Colin O'Donoghue lined up. Unfortunately, we've just got news today. He's not going to be able to make it. Um, so I just want to let people know, because there were some people probably coming down for Colin. He won't be there tomorrow, unfortunately. But we'll see him again and he'll, um, yes, he'll we'll do something else again with him. So, but don't um, but worry. I'll be there. She's going to be there herself and it's going to be a great <laughs> yeah. evening. And, uh, yeah, and it's just you know. a social, come down and have a glass of wine uh, or two. And uh, just, yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be a good few dance. I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, lovely. Thank you for coming to us oh, today on Late Lunch to talk about this wonderful book. I wish you well with it. The Nanny at Number 43 by Nicola Cassidy. I have a personal signed copy here to give away. We'll get a copy for the listeners yeah. uh, to give away. So if you'd like a copy of Nicola's book today, The Nanny at Number... What number were we talking about? Don't say it's The Nanny at Number What. What number have we been mentioning for the last while on Late Lunch? Text the number in with your name and details and we'll get a copy of this book out to you ASAP. Nicola, good luck. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for Thanks joining me. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Wednesday afternoon. 43 was the answer I was looking for. Yes, that's the number and the title of Nicola Cassidy's new novel, The Nanny at number 43. And uh, receiving a copy of Nicola's book is Lorraine Corrigan uh, from Athboy in County Mead. Well done to you, Lorraine. We'll be in touch. And thanks to everybody who sent in the correct answer. You were listening all right. An awful lot of people with number 43 with the 43 in the answer. Thanks indeed. Uh, a Formula Mountain bike. It's a very good mountain bike, I believe, was found on the Ice House Hill in Dundalk. 
Are you missing a mountain bike? It's a real good one. We have the information. We know who has that bike. If it's yours, give us a shout. 041 983 uh, And just to remind you that this evening, the official grand opening of the Luminous Skin and Laser Clinic at Seatown Gardens, Dundalk, is happening. And we're there with the Roadrunner. So drop in between 5 and 8 this evening. Local fashion blogger Glam Meets Girl will be there. Cocktails, goodie bags, taser treatments, you name it. Uh, taster treatments. <laughs> what did I say? Taser. God, that'd be a treatment to get a taser, wouldn't it? Taster treatments is what you can have there and giveaways. <laughs> That's this Wednesday from five o'clock. I have to tell you, I heard a very funny one yesterday on the uh, Today FM. Matt Cooper was talking to Sharon Lynch, former Sharon, Sharon Lynch, former from the newsroom here in LMFM, Louise. And they were, the story, Sharon had the story, the rat. You heard the story oh, of the yeah, rat in the, doll. In, in the doll bar. And Matt says, great quip from Matt. Which party did it belong to? <laughs> <laughs> I love Brilliant. it. I love it. But look, on a solemn and serious note, what shock and reverberation there's been since the news this morning that the Oliver Tully has passed away. He Very was sad. a real good man, Oliver. He, uh, he really was, was. He was one of the real good politicians who worked hard for his people and got an awful lot done. And we're shocked. We're all shocked to hear of his passing today. And Joe Sweeney, former president of St. Vincent de Paul and Drogheda, was on to us to, to express his sincere condolences to Oliver's family to say he was always very helpful and supportive of St Vincent de Paul. I'm sure many people across the board would say that and the political world across the board is in shock today and I'd like to add our uh, sympathies yeah. to Eileen, his wife, and his four children. Uh, he really will be missed, Oliver Tully. You know that yourself, Louise. He's oh, uh, yeah. your He's local representative out there and as I'd well. And I know Sarah, his daughter, very, as well. Very, so very sad. Very sorry we for really her. are sad today to hear of Oliver's untimely passing. Up next on Late Lunch, have you ever heard of the Irish Milers Club? Yes, they're fantastic people and they're bringing a big athletics meeting to the Lourdes Stadium in Drogheda this Saturday. And up next on Late Lunch, we're going to have a chat about it. Lourdes Stadium and Drogheda has always been synonymous with athletics, going back to its foundation, the wonderful father Kevin Connolly, who built the place initially. But if he came back today and saw it, he wouldn't believe what's there. It's beautiful and it's dedicated to athletics now. And there's a big meeting coming up this coming weekend at Lourdes Stadium. I'm delighted to welcome back to Late Lunch. We've met him before. This man gets better as the years go by. Mark O'Shea is with us. He's a wonderful athlete. And straight off a plane, I believe, he's only had time to have a shower, is Jay Bree. You're both very welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Mark, tell our listeners first, the significance of this Meet the Weekend. Why is it so significant and important? Yeah, I think it's one of the most uh, high-profile events that we've had in Drogheda in years. Um, It's a track event. As you say, it's up in the Lourdes Stadium. um, And it's uh, run in conjunction with the Irish Milers Club, um, which is one of the primary um, and most you know, professional groups out there in terms of uh, Irish athletics. Um, So they are bringing uh, their expertise to our track, Mm. along with our own um, management, I suppose, of the event. Which is Drawhead Athletics Club, Drawhead AC. Drawhead District AC, yeah. 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 Um, And we may talk a bit more about them later on. Yes, yeah. um, So we, um, you know, they're a very highly recognised organisation, so we're delighted to have them come to our track, you know, and, uh, you know, like we provide the athletic, the track, the facility, and that the, the, we staff it, and um, and then we uh, go and we bring in a lot of uh, top class, top athletes. class athletes, and yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. thing about this. This is that's an opportunity it. for people to come along and see real good boys and girls who are at the top of their game 
right here in the North East. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's yeah. on Saturday, yes? That's Saturday. What t- time does it start? It starts at one one thirty with... Um, Novice miles. So Great. we have, um, I think we've made four novice miles. So you'd have athletes who are kind of maybe not used to track running. And so mm. they might, I think we started at a five minute mile pace. So they'll have pacers. Yeah. So I believe one of our stars, Robbie, Robbie Marr, will be pacing some of these races. I might okay. do one. Yeah. And maybe we could drag Jay in here. Yeah. Can stay okay. awake that long to yeah. do one as well. <laughs> he will. He will. He'll, uh, be, he'll be over his lag by that it's stage. It's a long yeah. flight from Toronto. Yeah, it is. So, um, so then we've got, I think, four, four individual novice miles. So it's experiential you know running mm. the track with a pace a pacer so you might get to get a personal best out of it so that's very interesting mm. um, and then from there we move on to the main event which is the Irish Milers event and with events from 100 metres all the way through to 3000 metres okay okay at that we have as you say we have it for guys and for girls and we have some top class Irish athletes a lot of international athletes um, and we have an international contingent as well okay you know some guys coming from Italy we have Jay from Toronto. Yes. Uh, three Italians. We have, um, we're down to have two UK girls. Mm. Uh, one of them, unfortunately, has a deep vein from both. It's just oh, no. overnight. No flights. No way. So no. no way. But she's been no fairly, it's fairly intensive looking at it, looking at the pictures of the hospital pictures. Yeah. Um, so Lucy Robinson. So we'll wish her well mm. and hopefully see her maybe next year. Um, we have Georgia Yearby from the UK in the 800 metres. So. Okay, you know, so there's an international so flavour to it. So what we're saying, there's an international flavour to this. The best of the Irish will be there. There's all distances for men and women as well. Mm-hmm. And you really are going to see top-class athletics in the Lourdes Stadium this coming Saturday. Absolutely. Jay, you're very welcome to the show. Jay Breacher, just off a flight yes. from Toronto. Yes, uh, red-eye flight. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about yourself and, and, and the distances you run. Well, uh, I... Uh, Ran when I was very young, but uh, stopped uh, when I was in high school and didn't start again until I was in my mid-20s. I started running road races and marathons. I've run about 15 marathons in total. I've done uh, Boston, New York five times, Chicago, uh, a number of other ones. And uh, it was when I was in my mid-30s that I started training with the University of Toronto Track Club, uh, and I just decided to try running a middle distance track race and really fell in love with it. I I really enjoyed um, the number of races you could do in a year, uh, the camaraderie among the the people that I got to know, and I discovered as well that there's a thriving uh, master's athletic scene uh, around the world, Mm. and every year there are world championships held, uh, so that over the last eight years I've competed in seven different world championships in far-flung locations from uh, Brazil, uh, Australia, South Korea. Uh, It was in South Korea that I first met Mark. Uh, We subsequently competed against each other in Boston, as well as in uh, Spain and Poland earlier this year. And your personal best, tell them what you've done in a marathon. Uh, my best marathon is two hours and 35 minutes. You can shift. <laughs> uh, but that's actually uh, more than an hour better than my first marathon. Ah, terrific. So, um, it shows you yeah. the improvement you'd ma- you've made. But there is a fl- flourishing scene in the Masters, both uh, both indoor and outdoor as well. So mm-hmm. you're coming to... Have you run in Ireland before? No, I've never first been time. to Ireland before today. Mm-hmm. Today's Great. my first day. Fantastic. That's great. You'll have to make a wish when you're there. 
there as well. So what are you what are you running? What events are you running on on Saturday? Uh, just the fifteen hundred. Okay, the fifteen hundred. Yeah. Oh, listen! Don't we all love the fifteen hundred meters? <laughs> no, no disrespect to marathon runners or long distance. The hundred meters and the fifteen. You know, for Mark, you know, yeah. this is the common woman or man's perception really of Lennox. No matter what you say, they're the big two, aren't they? They are. I mean, you can get me into trouble for doing. <laughs> I want to use the word thoroughbred, but I know I'll be hung for saying that. I have you to know, say that. Now, we, Jay uh, mentioned these, uh, the internationals and the world's masters. Yeah. Let me tell listeners, this man, Mark O'Shea, two golds in Korea in 2017 and a bronze just in uh, the spring gone by. Where were the, the most recent indoors? Where were that they? was in Poland. In Poland, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know how Fantastic. to win medals. Yeah, I just wish I was maybe fitter sometimes, you know. it's uh, you, oh, Listen, when you hit our age... name is St. Christopher. Do you hear he said, fitter? Listen, when you hit our age, you know, it's, it's a fight to stay on your feet sometimes. Just be healthy, you know. And we spend half our year injured. The rest of it complaining that we're not injured. Oh, look, that's wear, that's wear and tear, Jay, isn't Absolutely. it? You know, like, that's the years Comes go. with the territory. Well, yeah, yeah, the joints and the lubrication. You're always trying to push it as far as you can. I know, you know what I, mean? I know. And you obviously sometimes push it over. So what's for you Saturday? What, what are you going to take, Mark to, I hope pace one of the miles, one of the novice miles. Okay, that's um, all know, right. I'll be suffering with injury, and this year yeah. no, no different. So, so again, that pacing means that you set up and you try to get people to the best time possible. Yeah, you go on a steady pace. Yes, if there's six minute miles, then you do a six minute mile pace. You mm. break it down. You watch, watch the clock. You but know. you're not part of the race itself. No, I no. won't be racing. No. Yeah, I'm just thinking to the Irish Derby race recently, where the pacemakers shot out at the stalls. This is horse racing. Mm. They were never caught. I know, it happens, but very rarely. Very rarely. has happened, all right. Yeah. But Drada and District Athletic Club, wonderful history as well, oh, your club, yes. Absolutely, and it was the 20th anniversary this year of yes. the latest, you know, in, instalment of Drada Legs. I mean, yes. we, we obviously, we're now Drada and District, previous to that would be in the Lords AC and so yeah. on. Um, but this year is our 20th anniversary, so it's great to have this event on in the anniversary mm. year, you know. Mm. Um but the club is actually um, it's one of the top, I would say, top three to five clubs in terms of size in the country. It's so five hundred members now. Um, so you got you know got the bedrock of the the, the yeah. road runners. Mm. Um, a lot of couch to five k people have uh, have stayed on, which That's is a fantastic. Right. Initiative. That was a great initiative oh, you did. Oh my yeah. god, Jay! The people they came out in the thousands to run yeah. in this. People who oh. maybe never have run before. You're right. You've, yeah, you've got a new six weeks to get from pretty much as you start at zero to. You know, running a 5K. 5K. So it's fantastic. And a lot of people then continue it on because there's that group structure behind it. And, you know, it, they everyone helps everybody else along and encourages. And then you get into it and you remember at the club and you get racing more often. You know, you race pretty much every month at that stage. Yes, you know, yes. So we've got a lot of roadrunners, um, as I said, the five, Couch to 5K, Fit for Life. Mm. And then all the way through, so mar- roads, like 10K, 5Ks, the marathon people to cross-country people and then the track guys. Yeah, and, and, and the message from that is really any age. You know, you mm-hmm. took a break, Jay, you mentioned there. Yes. But just to say to people today, you can take this up at any age. Absolutely, yes. And that's what I've really Really discovered uh, sometimes running uh, local races. Uh, I'm often competing against kids who are uh, age 14 to 22. Uh, but in these world competitions, you meet other people like Mark who share that enduring love for the sport. Yes. And there's no reason why we can't continue to compete uh, as as long as humanly possible. Mm, yeah, it goes up to all ages. Yeah, what age can a, can a child begin running at? What's yeah, the ideal age well, to start listen, them off? I'd have my own opinions on that, but you certainly can, like, say for our club, for example, you can start at the, at age eight, and we've quite a small, quite a, you know, growing, it's sizable yeah. now, but it's growing mm. um, from kids aged eight-ish. Um, 
through to juvenile, you know, all the way up to junior, at which point then you, you go into the adult section. So we've got some good promising um, mm. junior athletes. Like we have Abby Taggart on the girls' side and um, Ty Donnelly be the standout athlete in the club, to be honest. I mean, yeah. he absolutely is. Mm. As at that tender age of 17 or 18, mm. you know, 17 I think he is. Um, he'd, be our, he'd be our top athlete in the club. He is mm. that good. And it's a great promise for the future, mm. you know. Um, Somebody there asking, will that couch to 5K happen again, do you think? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah, because yeah. I'd love, somebody says there, I'd love to, Jerry, mm. uh, to be able to run 5K. Can they get in cl- touch with the club in the meantime? Yeah, yeah there's a website, it's the Drawdown District AC. Dot com. Okay. Okay. And then the Facebook page would be the same. Drawn in district on Facebook. There's you know connections there. Mm. You can just lo- you know send a message. Mm. Yeah. And they're they're constantly running. Mm. Yeah. Your aim has to be Jay Breacher to bring the bacon back to Toronto with you after this weekend. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately, I will have had a few days to uh, acclimatize, yes. get over the jet lag. You're running tonight, uh, are you? I I am. Yeah. That'll just be a rust buster. Um, yeah, I don't have high hopes for tonight's race, but I'll give it my best Jay, shot. Jay's one of these guys who loves to race. Mm. You yeah. athletes are something racing. else. Do you, Mark? I, really? I Come not. on. Yeah, listen. I don't like racing. He loves racing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, not bad for a guy who has two yeah. golds and a bronze in recent years. Yes. He doesn't even like racing. Imagine what he'd be like if he did like it. Right. Uh, but look at back before we finish up, because time will be us to Saturday to say to everybody... Come along to the Lord Stadium in Drogheda Saturday. If you've never seen the new facility, you'll be more than surprised. You'll be welcomed. You're going to see such an array of talent there on Saturday. And I do want to mention that the Irish Milers, that was set up by the wonderful Sonny O'Sullivan, Eamon Coughlin and Ronnie Delaney, of course, who was a guest of ours here on the show okay. uh, this year as well. So they're the people behind this as well. They're, they're instrumental. Yes, in, in I think Michael together. McGovern and Sue McGovern, who run it, are, are they the people ex- today. exceptional individuals. Yeah, they're yeah, wonderful, yeah, yeah. wonderful people. Well, look, we just wanted to give it an outing today on the radio to let you Brilliant. know that this is happening. So all clubs in the area and beyond, if you're just curious, if you follow sport, if you love athletics, get along to the Lord Stadium. One o'clock, the action begins on this Saturday. And say hello to Jay Breacher and tell him you heard him on the radio this afternoon. Thank you both for yeah. joining me and congratulations on your 20th you anniversary to the Drogheda Club as well. Yeah, for brilliant. the moment, let's leave it there this afternoon. Mark O'Shea and Jay Breacher, thank you brilliant. so much for dropping Thanks in. Lot, thank thank you. Thanks a million thank indeed. You. That's a lot on late lunch for this Wednesday afternoon. Have a lovely evening. Paul McKenna's up next uh, with The Drive. We'll see you for late lunch Thursday, half one. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors. Setting the standards higher for award-winning customer service you can trust. Visit your regional dealer for Renault and Dacia in the Northeast for exclusive offers with lowest can be APR finance and finance arranged within four hours. Dare to live? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.